What's up, everybody? Are you tuning in to the Challenge USA on CBS? Well, tune in to me, Tyson Apostle, as I break down each and every episode with my co-host, Amelia Wedemeyer. I'm also a contestant on the show, which gives you all the insider scoop. Amelia, how stoked are you to do this? Tyson, I'm freaking excited. I cannot wait to sit my butt down every single week to watch the show, then come here and recap it with you on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. Hello and welcome back to the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson and uh, joining me now after his ninth or tenth Cinnabon, I think it is, it's Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben. Funny you should say that because, Joanna, our listeners can't see this, but I brought props for this podcast. Now, no one will believe this because, you know, our on-mic chemistry is just so strong that I'm sure no one would ever suspect we aren't sitting in the same room, but we are sadly separated by a continent And I know that smells and tastes don't travel over video, but I brought both you and producer Chris Sutton classic cinnamon rolls from Cinnabon. Oh my God, you actually (laughs) did. (laughs) Oh my God. This is not SponCon. I just, uh, I had a hankering for some strange reason. Apparently product placement works. (laughs) (laughs) Chris is also thrilled. Oh my God, in the chat. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You guys, uh, my reaction is genuine. The crinkle of that bag was real. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's, he's opening the box to make sure that the microphone can smell the uh, <laughs> if only. I suppose. Yeah. Now I'm not going to eat this while we record because there's nothing worse than the sound of someone eating on a podcast. <laughs> Plus I promised my wife she could have them, <laughs> but Aww. I have heard some of the actors on Better Call Saul talk about how the props and the sets help them inhabit their characters. So I thought we might yeah. podcast better if at least Aww. one of us was basking in the authentic aroma of mass-produced baked goods. So I wish we could do a, a smell-o-vision edition of this <laughs> podcast so that everyone could partake. Mm. But I'll just have to describe it. You can get your whiffs through me vicariously. But let me ask you something. If you could cross mm-hmm. the 3,000-mile gulf between us or yeah. the far fewer miles between you and the nearest Cinnabon, presumably, and yeah. eat this tantalizing piece of pastry that I'm holding here, how would you do it? Would you precisely saw it into pieces like for the <laughs> security guard or would you just pick it up and go to town? Mm, okay. Well, so here's a true story about me. I've never had a Cinnabon uh, Oh, my goodness. Roll. Oh, boy. Uh, they're, I don't think they're as prevalent here on the West uh-huh. Coast as they are on the East Coast. I only had to go a few blocks to get mine. <laughs> we have more. Um, is it? It's an- Auntie Anne's, I think, mm. right? The pretzels. There's an Auntie Anne's right next to the Cinnabon that I oh, patronized today. <laughs> Festival possible world. Yeah, we have. There's. I. There was one in a mall, like 
that I can remember. And and what I will say is like they smell heavenly. They smell yes. amazing. Do they taste as good as they smell? Well, I haven't vouched for this particular batch, <laughs> but it's it's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know that it can compare to the smell, but I'm just wondering about the implements you would use to eat it. Oh yeah, yeah. I can I can answer a cinnamon roll question. Yeah, sure. hypothetically, if you yeah. if I could hand this to you through the screen yeah, yeah. somehow. I mean, I, I was I was handed a knife and fork when I purchased mm-hmm. it, and I feel like that's like when Bill de Plasio ate a piece of pizza with a knife and fork <laughs> and the tabloids went wild because a real New Yorker would never hashtag not my mayor. Would you fold your Cinnabon in half and, <laughs> right. eat, and eat it like you yeah. would a slice of za? That's the, the authentic uh, <laughs> New York cinnamon roll method. I think, I, I mean, I think I would definitely, I mean, Cinnabon are daunting because they're huge, right? Like mm-hmm. a classic cinnamon roll that's like a little daintier than that. Definitely all fingers all the time, yeah. right? And yeah. and I And I like the Chris Ryan method, which is go straight for the like cinnamon choke center. For the center, the, uh, right? The roll, yeah, it goes yeah. straight for the center. Evidently, they they sell a, a just a center, but <laughs> we're we're not I know, doing... like it's like a donut hole, right? <laughs> yeah, what exactly. Just sell roll holes. Um, what about you? <laughs> Are you a silver guy? How do you I do? think I would use my hands more so than silverware or plasticware for this. I think it also depends on like where you are. Like if I'm mm-hmm. around people I don't know, you know, like how sometimes you eat a little, you know, different depending on who you're around, and you're sort of sure. like. Trying to be genteel with your Cinnabon, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't know that that's what Frank is doing, but um, Frank, Frank no, appears to be savoring his Minding his, his matters. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I appreciated how he played off the first dessert as a rare departure from his healthy diet. But then once he was seated, yeah. <laughs> he's, he got down to business, like yeah, a man yeah, yeah. who has put in some serious Cinnabon time. Anyway, I asked the woman at the register who gave me the knife and fork whether there had been a post-Better Call Saul stampede to Cinnabon, whether there was a a big run on buns. And she was not only unaware of the part Uh that her employer had played in this week's episode, but also seemingly unaware of the existence of the series Better Call Saul. (laughs) But but both the Better Call Saul and Cinnabon brands are strong on the Prestige TV podcast. Wow. I love that you just did some like shoe leather reporting. Yeah, man on the street. Do you think I can write off these cinnamon rolls as a business expense? (laughs) 100%. 100%. We've now spent five minutes talking about that. Yeah. Well, I started last week by serenading you with my Billy Joel meets Better Call Saul mashup. So I had to top that somehow. This is a podcast about the TV series Better Call Saul and not, in <laughs> fact, a podcast about Cinnabon. So we will be talking about it throughout mm-hmm. this episode. Uh, we are here to talk about season six, episode 10, Nippy and Cinnabons, mm-hmm. obviously. Yep. Um, quick correction. I said multiple times on the podcast last week that we only had three episodes left of the show. When in fact we had four. Now we only have three episodes left of the show. Right. But I misspoke a couple times last week. I could not tell you why. Just got it into my head. And I and I'm worried that I infected Chris Ryan because Chris <laughs> yes, Ryan got it wrong right. on the watch. And I'm worried that's my fault. So uh anyway. Everyone's been a bit thrown by the extra long season and the mid-season break, but don't worry, we love this show. We aren't trying to play it off the stage early. We no. wish there were more episodes. <laughs> Absolutely. Quick program reminder before we uh, dive further into Saul, just that elsewhere on this feed, I'm watching Westworld every week. It's really good this season. I'm talking to you, David Shoemaker and Danny Heifetz about it every week this week. <laughs> I mentioned this podcast 
and said probably we'd be talking about Aaron Paul this week, and I was wrong. So <laughs> yeah, uh, we all Danny were. Hyman, <laughs> Danny Hyman is like spoilers. I was like, is it? And re- it really wasn't. <laughs> there was a so, Mister X. Um, yeah, yeah. There you go. So we are here to talk about Nippy, directed by the great Michelle McLaren and written by the great Allison Tatlock. Allison's also an EP on the show. Um, between them, they've they're responsible for a lot of great episodes of both Better Call Saul and, in McLaren's case, Breaking Bad. Though they've never worked together because McLaren worked more towards the beginning of Better Call Saul, and Allison Tatlock came on in season four to write some great episodes like Black and Blue, Fifty Percent, Something Stupid, JMM, and now Nippy. We were predicting that because, or I was predicting, <laughs> I should say, that because Michelle McLaren was such a Breaking Bad heavy hitter, that this would definitely be a Walt and Jesse. Or right. at least Breaking Bad era caper, because why else bring Michelle McLaren back? And the reason you bring Michelle McLaren back is she's one of the greatest TV directors of all time. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. why she's here. Um, do you have any thoughts or feelings about the uh, the duo working on this particular episode, Ben Lindbergh? Well, it's just kind of a, a dream team, right? I'm glad they mm-hmm. got to team up before the end, because the rest of the way, the three remaining episodes were going Tom Schnauz and then Gilligan and Gould, right? Directing. So yeah. bringing it back to the originals who have been such heavy hitters on this series, but I'm glad we got to see this team up, and I guess we should talk a little bit about how we thought it went. Yeah, so let's talk about our expectations versus <laughs> reality, which is something we we talked about last week, too, but I think it's really funny that you and I have been having these conversations uh, the last couple of weeks where we were like, well, we kind of thought that that's how that would go. No, we kind of thought that that's how right. it would go. And this week, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like this went complete 180 from where I yep. thought it was going to go. And, uh, you know, the the both on the Insider Pod and in various uh, Allison Tatlock interviews, there's been this constant refrain of, like, we really wanted to catch people off their guard. And they did, for me, in every way possible. But I really loved this episode. Ben Lindbergh, how did you feel? I was just saying before we hit record that I was excited to hear how you felt about this one. Because sometimes we compare notes pre-podcast, sometimes we don't. And this time we saved it for the session to get that organic, unpracticed reaction. And I can imagine... That (laughs) fresh-baked cinema feeling. Right. I can imagine and I can even understand a pretty broad range of responses to this episode. And I've seen some of them. (laughs) But Mm, I'm with you. I really liked this episode. And I know last week I said that I look at this series more as a unified whole than as a sequence of individual episodes. But this one still stood out. I guess we can't quite call it a bottle episode. Maybe we'll talk about that. But it was a single singular entry in the catalog, I would say, with only one main cast member that still felt totally emblematic of Better Call Saul for me. Like, last week's episode was one we had been waiting for, the episode that answered big questions about Jimmy and Kim's relationship and how Jimmy transformed into Saul. And it was so well done, and the character choices felt fitting, and the breakup was painful. No complaints, but also fewer surprises than we're used to from the series, just because we're so prescient, you know. But this <laughs> week, we got another episode that we'd been waiting for, I think, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. we wanted extended time with Gene in black and white world, but nothing about it was what I expected. Not when it happened, not how it happened. 
I know it wasn't as momentous or as emotionally draining as last week's episode, which, as we discussed, seemed like a series finale for the prequel part of the show. But I just enjoyed having fallen for the misdirect, like one of the marks in the episode mm-hmm. and one of <laughs> Saul slash Jimmy slash Gene's schemes. Like they dangled Walt and Jesse and Saul in front of us, like savory cinnamon rolls. And we were just so distracted, we didn't see Gene coming quite yet. Plus, we're thinking... Oh boy, Michelle McLaren behind the camera. Someone's going to die or come close to dying. And instead, we got a vintage, somewhat low stakes scheme, meticulously plotted, laid out in detail. And as usual, just well shot, well acted, very funny, also somewhat sad at the same time. And just a nice temporary reprieve, I think, after Howard dying and Lalo dying and Jimmy McGill kind of dying in a sense. Oh, and yeah. Jimmy and Kim's marriage definitely dying. So my sister-in-law watched the episode a little bit before me and my wife, and she messaged us to say, oh, there's so many cameos in this episode. And I thought, of course, we were going to get a parade of Breaking Bad characters. <laughs> But nope. Your sister-in-law was also trolling you. I love that. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about some of the misdirects, but but let's let's go back to Michelle McLaren really quickly because mm-hmm. I just want to like give her her laurels. Do you like do you associate a moment or a shot or anything with Michelle McLaren that cemented her as like an all-timer for you? I don't know if I have a specific shot in mind more so than you just look at the list of episodes. And I know she was involved in multiple capacities with that series, but just mm-hmm. as a director. And it's kind of a murderer's row. It's like you knew you were going to get something big. Maybe you were going to get some sort of action set piece. Like there was going to be something climactic, more so maybe than a mall heist. And yet her signature style, (laughs) I think, was still on display here, right? And if you listen to the Insider Pod, and as always, we recommend that, it sounds Mm -hmm. like it was an incredibly complicated and complex exercise, even though it all took place in this mall almost entirely. It was a lot to handle. So it may not have seemed as ambitious as some of her Breaking Bad greatest hits, but maybe behind the scenes, it sort of was. Yeah. I'll just shout out um, Tahajali, which is, you know, her final episode that she did for Breaking Bad. And there's just some, like, incredible shots of, like, Walt alone with just, like, so much desert around him. Um, That's such a big part of that episode. And it sticks in my mind. And obviously, like, she was already a legend before that episode. But that's that's an episode that I also, because it comes right before Ozymandias, which so many people consider, like, the height of Breaking Bad. And that's an incredible episode. I feel like Tahajali gets a little lost, but Tahajali is also an incredible episode mm-hmm. of television. Um, so Michelle McLaren, troll number one. Number yep. two, let's talk about the uh, description of this episode, a new player gets in the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we were me. like, oh, here comes Walter White. Uh, yep. But no, it was J- Jeff the cabbie, uh, <laughs> yeah. is who we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um there's a mention of Walter White in this episode, of course, which felt like an intentional extra little twist of the knife uh, to me. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. I liked the way that that stab wound felt. And then um, the high heel shot, I think, made there's like a close up a high heel shot that made, I think, a lot of people think, is this Kim? Is Kim yeah. shopping in this Nebraska mall? Is, is that mm-hmm. what we're going to get? No, Kim, not happening. And the way that Alison Tatlock described this, I think this is her talking to Alan Seppenwall. She said, 
No, I think this is on the Insider Podcast. She said, deliciously, perhaps in an agonizing way, <laughs> deliciously disorienting Yeah, uh, is how she described this episode. Also on the Insider Podcast, we learned that Peter Gould had wanted to make this episode happen for seasons. And by that, I mean an all Gene, all black and white episode rather than the little bits and bites he wanted to do, the whole cinnamon roll. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is how they finally did it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did it. Yeah. And, you know, people thought when Carol Burnett showed up, she might be Kim's mom or related to some other major character. Nope. Just Jeff the cabbie's mom. (laughs) And (laughs) I guess I speculated that Nippy might have something to do with winter in Omaha. Yeah, So I wasn't way off, but I didn't predict a fake lost dog or (laughs) that the so after all that, a happy ending line would be about the fake lost dog being fake found. (laughs) So... And also, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even within the episode, in the shoplifting sequence, I kept expecting the maintenance man to drive in on his floor scrubber and run into Jeff, right? Because we heard that he was going to be called to fix that streak on the floor, but we didn't see it happen. And so yeah. I thought that was the way it was going to go down. I didn't realize he'd already come and gone, so I wasn't expecting it when Jeff went flying full banana peel, just like Chuck at the coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> Ted Benneke and Breaking Bad. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's slip and fall season. So even though we knew something was going to go wrong and that it was going to have something to do with what was on the floor, I still didn't see it coming just because I thought it was going to be some kind of encounter (laughs) rather than just him being upended. So even within the episode, I wasn't sure where this was going the whole time. It's like, why are they stealing this stuff? You know that (laughs) Saul, whoever he is now, (laughs) we can talk about what to call him, but you know he had to have some ulterior motive. But it was tough to see it even in the moment as we were watching. One last tip of the hat I want to give to their uh, hiding the ball is how... The pro- the next time on promos, how last week, like or two weeks ago, they used a black and white shot with a quote over it right. to, you know, to say next time on, <laughs> to hide the fact that when they used a black and white shot this week, we wouldn't immediately go, oh, clearly it's a Gene episode. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. brilliant. That's yeah. so brilliant. <laughs> um, there's also parallels, a lot of parallels, and we'll get to like one really interesting one later, but a lot of parallels to the season five, episode five of Breaking Bad Dead Freight, which is mm-hmm. the train heist, uh, which we've talked a lot about the ending of that episode and and the shooting of the kid and how that was like a real turning point for, for Jesse in season five of Breaking Bad. But it's a caper heist episode, that episode and this episode. I love a heist. I never <laughs> get tired of a heist in my life. I don't know if this is quite a heist as a robbery, but I'm going to call it a heist mm-hmm. or a caper if you prefer. Ben, what's your what's your feeling on heist caper episodes? Like, how do you feel? <laughs> Very high on heists. This one <laughs> was much more compressed than the Howard one, even though it also seemingly took place over several weeks. We can talk about the timeline here, but it did not take place over several episodes. And right. there wasn't the same sense that it would end in disaster in the way that the Howard one did. So I was totally into it. I don't know whether this will be the last time that we ever see Saul slash Jimmy slash Gene scheming and conning and heisting. But if it was, it was a pretty good way to go out. It was not his most elaborate one ever. And the payoff wasn't the biggest, but I just enjoyed just seeing him do what he does, just getting back to what he's best at or what he has been best at before and what this series really has been best at historically. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start with Carol Burnett, which 
I was not spoiled on. I like started the episode and I was like, oh, ho, ho. And actually somehow, <laughs> despite the fact that I've been like living on the Reddit board and doing this podcast with you, I missed that Carol Burnett was in this season, even though it was a known <laughs> and highly speculated about thing. Uh, so I was just like, oh, hey, Carol Burnett is here. <laughs> Does this strike you as um, this is the biggest cameo or, or, or guest appearance that has ever happened in the Gilligan verse, right? Like, wouldn't you say so? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Like Robert Forster, like with with love and respect, is an incredible actor, uh, you know, rest in peace. But like Carol Burnett is huge, yep. huge get. <laughs> yeah. And apparently she's a huge Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul fan. Yep. And something I loved hearing about on the Insider podcast is not just like that she was a fan and excited to be there, but like this idea that when they filmed this presumably in short order after Bob had had his like health uh, scare, health incident. And that, you know, they were saying on the insider podcast that his spirits are really low and that working with Carol Burnett, like really boosted his spirits. That made me very emotional <laughs> that Bob Odenkirk yeah. is like, had a, you know, had a real scare, was not feeling his best. And then he got to work with a freaking comedy legend. And he's like, Oh, you know what? Life life is okay. I get to work yeah. with Carol Burnett, you know? Yeah. I've been so. immersing myself in interviews, as you have. And so I was listening to Odin Kirk and Gould on Fresh Air this week also. And mm -hmm. he was talking a bit about how he felt like he had a new lease on life after he came back from the heart attack and how that helped him be present in scenes in some ways. But it also has to help when Carol Burnett shows up. And yeah, I guess she's at the level where when Carol Burnett says, hey, I like your show, I can come on. <laughs> you don't say no. You say, yes, please. What would you like to do? Or how can we find a way to fit you into this universe? And they seem to have great chemistry on the screen. You might imagine that they have similar comedic sensibilities. And I'm sure that Odenkirk really looks up to her and admires her. It's just it's cool to see these two on the screen together. And I had forgotten, by the way, that there's actually a reference to Carol Burnett in Saul season two, in a flashback scene where pre-recluse Chuck and his then <laughs> wife, Rebecca, are uh -huh. discussing how to get rid of Jimmy if he wears out his welcome at dinner. And Chuck says, how about the old Carol Burnett thing in reference to her trademark earlobe tug? Uh -huh. And so now Carol Burnett shows up in the Saulverse, not playing herself, but still subtly doing the earlobe tug in the supermarket scene, I believe. So I don't know what implications this has for whether this is the real Carol Burnett in this universe and what that means based on that earlier line. But maybe that just goes to show that she was always destined to appear here or that there was a lot of admiration for her. And so it made sense, I think. And she was great. I had such a like joy chain reaction watching the opening of this because you're like, oh, Carol Burnett's here. Oh, she's being delightfully cranky. <laughs> oh, there's the Schnauz Farms tease that we got <laughs> earlier in the season. Uh, yeah. If you listen to the Insider podcast, they, they mentioned Schnauz Farms and said that'll come in later. Um, <laughs> and it was just a label on the cheese in the supermarket. Fun. She said, like, I think Wisconsin, you could keep it or something mm -hmm. like that in term in terms of that cheddar and then yeah. oh we see like him stapling the flyer in a frame i'm like oh that's what nippy is okay <laughs> right. and then we see the like the beginning of that interaction and i'm like oh it's slipping jimmy man it's jimmy doing what he does best which yep. is charm an older woman like who mm -hmm. does it better than jimmy and like in terms of the tone of that because I've liked the gene sequences. They're interesting. They're tantalizing. It's good to think about the the future and how it contrasts. But they've been such 
like terrible bummers, obviously, because like, you know, yeah. we're we're watching Gene Jimmy Saul at his lowest, right? That's that's what it's supposed to be. And so uh, like we've got it in small doses, and but every time you're just sort of like, oh, it's a gene <laughs> sequence. It's gonna, it's gonna be beautiful and sad. Oh no. But like here he right. comes bounding out. Doing his thing, I was like, oh, no, we're going to have fun here <laughs> yeah. in Gene Town. That's great. Yeah, I almost expected. I have expected that, like, color would come back into the episode, like, almost like <laughs> yeah. a Pleasantville sort of thing. I'm glad they didn't do that, but it would have <laughs> fit totally, like I think. Joan like Joan Allen in the bathtub? Sure. Yeah, yeah. you know, and— <laughs> Even like there's the slippery sidewalk at the very beginning. That was his specialty back in Cicero, right? Find an icy sidewalk and take a fall. And here he's making an extra slushy sidewalk for the start of another con. And just to see him relating to the elderly again in the way that he always has, I think, semi-sincerely, at least. I think it works on multiple levels, right? He just gets along with these people and they like him and he likes them. He is also often conning or scheming, (laughs) but I think Uh it can be both at the same time. So yeah, it was great to see him back in action again. Uh, fun fact, if you call the number on the flyer, you get a really fun little message from Bob Odenkirk <laughs> that someone has uploaded on YouTube. And I'm going to have our lovely producer, Chris, uh, splice a little bit of that audio in here. But it's pretty, pretty charming. Yes. Whoever took a little like mic into Bob Odenkirk's trailer and asked him to read this is <laughs> is a real star as far as I'm concerned. At the end of the day, he's just a cuddle bug who loves to snuggle on the couch underneath his favorite blankie. It breaks my heart to think of sweet Nippy wandering the streets, hungry and cold. If you have any leads, any at all, please share at the beat and spread the word if you can. Nippy and I would be forever grateful. Let's talk about the title sequence. So you mentioned this, I think, even as recently as last week, the idea that the title sequence on the show has been, like, degrading in quality week after week this season, that, like, the color has been draining out of it. It's getting more and more black and white, more warped. But, like, I think if people aren't watching super closely, they might not have noticed that. But surely they did notice the the blue screen <laughs> titles, uh, right. the old VHS blue screen titles on this week's episode. Where do you think this is going, the, the degradation of the title sequence? And I don't know where they go from here. I know that they have something planned for the last few, but they basically went almost full black and white. We saw the world's greatest lawyer mug falling, and then the tape just stops, and it sounds like it's getting ejected. You get the blue screen of death almost. I know it's not that kind of blue screen. It's a different blue screen, but it's like (laughs) stopping the tape. It's like we're off the map here, you know, like we're off the timeline. I think we're jumping ahead. This is a different series. It's still Better Call Saul, but it's not the Better Call Saul that we've known. And so the title sequence isn't either. And I don't know where they go from here, whether they go back to color, whether we rewind, maybe we get an actual (laughs) rewinding sound, the tape pops back in, who knows? But yeah, Yeah. I've been enjoying seeing where they take this. So let's talk about Jeff. Um, Marion, as played by Carol Burnett, has a son. He's Jeff. We've seen him before. He's the menacing cabbie mm-hmm. uh, that we met in previous seasons, previously played by the actor Don Harvey, who had a conflict. And so the the, the role was recast with Pat Healy. Um, did that recasting throw you off at all or did it stick out to you at all? It did at first. I was bummed about it, both because it was momentarily 
disorienting despite the sweater (laughs) and because new Jeff is a lot less menacing, I think, than the original recipe. But as the episode went on, I thought maybe that's okay because the power dynamic has changed since their previous encounters. Like this Jeff is living with his mom who's saying things like, Jeffy, don't vex me. (laughs) I'm not sure that (laughs) that sense of menace could have survived lines like that anyway. Uh Plus, in his previous appearances, Jeff was the one in control. Gene was scared and on the defensive. And here, Gene is channeling his old self or his old selves. And by the end, there's the total role reversal from Jeff making Gene say, better call Saul, to Gene slash Jimmy slash Saul ordering Jeff to say he's done. So Mm -hmm. I don't know whether the character was written that way in part because of the casting change, but ultimately it did work for me. Like I did pause the episode, flip over to Netflix, like rewatch that scene just to make sure that I was not imagining things, that this actually was a different human being. But once I proceeded, it, it actually worked for me, I think, in the end. And it's sort of surprising that this hasn't happened before in a noteworthy way. I think Gould maybe may have mentioned on the Insider Pod that it's like lucky that this hasn't happened previously just because they have this habit of reusing characters years after their first appearance and they're not really regulars. And so you can't lock them down to be in your show four years in the future for a single episode and you just have to hope. And they've had a great track record, I think, of being able to bring people back. And this time they couldn't. But I don't think it was a deal breaker. I think that's especially true of the gene sequences. But also, like, two weeks ago, we heard Tina Parker, who played Francesca, say that, like, you know, she runs a theater company in Texas and say that she would sort of figure out when they were going to be filming. And if maybe they were going to call her, she would, like, give herself a lighter assignment (laughs) that time of year to make herself available. But not everyone is like a Francesca level of the, they're probably going to call me, you know, right. at I least. I think everyone wants to be on this show if you're an actor, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah, so of course. They will yeah. probably do what they can to make it back, but it's perhaps not always possible. Pat Healy came to this episode straight off the set of Killer of the Flower Moon, the new Scorsese film. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not, we're not scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. What they yeah. did say on the Insider podcast that Pat originally auditioned for this role and didn't get it and actually has been auditioning for both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul <laughs> for a long time. So he was like one of their almost cast him uh, guys. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure he was thrilled to get the call. And okay, something that I loved. So uh, Ray Seahorn and Bob Odenkirk did a video with my uh, old employers, Vanity Fair. They were reading internet theories. This is a great series that uh, Conde Nast video does. And uh, Ray said that she, in that video, and wholly sincerely, she said she didn't know that the Albuquerque Isotopes air freshener that she was using in the trial earlier this season, she had no idea that that was a reference to something else. And nor did Bob. And I was like, <laughs> it's just, I mean, the writers know and the director knows and the producers know or whatever, but, yeah. but the cast doesn't know. And so it's just us at home pouring <laughs> over screenshots, trying to figure something out and then laughing back at the old <laughs> office. So I, that, that made yeah. me laugh. I I mean, they're busy actually appearing on the show or directing episodes, as the case may be. This is all we have. We have a lot of time on our hands, so. (laughs) (laughs) It's just this in Westworld. What else am I going to do? All right. (laughs) Let's talk about the montage. Uh, Peter Gould said this is one of the last montages that they're doing for the show. And and he didn't say, it's not the last, but he said one of the last. Okay, we only have three more episodes to go, so that's not like breaking news necessarily, but Mm -hmm. it's sad to think about. Yeah. 
And there's a couple great visual references within the show that we could point to here. Season two has the inf- the episode Inflatable. There's the montage where Jimmy's trying to get fired from Davis and Maine, and it has a lot of the similar split-screen effects that we get here as Saul is doing his, I believe, weekly trip to the uh, security guard office to offer up the Cinnabon. Um, and then also in, in Marco, the season one finale episode, when we see Marco and Jimmy, Marco is Jimmy's old, we're going to talk about Marco in a second, but Marco is Jimmy's old, like, grift buddy from back in Cicero, Mm -hmm. they do a con montage there. It's a little different. It's not the split screen. It's sort of like overlays, but um, just sort of similarly jaunty music during a montage. Did it make Mm -hmm. you think or or feel anything, Ben, as you were watching these? It was just a lot of fun, as you said. I mean, things have been heavy lately on this series. Last week was the rare exception, I think, to the tone varying a lot in this series, where even if it's dark, it's darkly comic. And that wasn't really the case last week. It was largely dark. And this one was much more comic. I mean, there are just a lot of really, really funny lines and sequences in this episode, and we can probably shout out a few of them. But it was great to see Jimmy just being up to his all old tricks. If this was Jimmy, I guess we really have to figure out what we're calling him at this point. It's complicated, yeah. right? We finally decided he was Saul last week, and now that's been thrown into question again because he could be Gene, he could be Jimmy, he could be Saul, he could be Walt, he could be some amalgamation of all of them. So it's tough to pin that down. I've been seeing a lot of people be very insistent that this is a Jimmy scheme, mm-hmm. but I've also seen Alison Tatlock, the writer of the episode, refer to this as like Saul Goodman emerging. So right. <laughs> I think it's maybe every everyone in the pool, like yeah, all personalities right. all at once. And I think this idea, I just want to shout out um, the split screen that's used in this montage here. Whenever I see that, I always think of the Thomas Crown Affair, 1968, which my dad showed me. And it was the first time I'd ever seen split screen as like a kid. And my dad showed me the the original Thomas Crown Affair. And I was so confused. I'm like, how are we meant to watch all of this all at once? But since that movie is such like, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that movie is so, is like caper wall to wall. Mm -hmm. Um, I always get the Thomas Crown Affair vibes off of something. Um, Yeah, it's a great montage time saver too. It's true. Um, But what I liked uh, when they were talking about deciding how to roll this episode out, they were like, okay, Gene's got his back up against the wall because his cabbie is threatening him, right? So what are the tools in his pocket, right? And and a Walter White reaction would be wholly different. It would would, uh, probably Jeff would be dead or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not what either Gene, Jimmy, or Saul are going to do and what Gene, Jimmy, Saul does is use the tools that Gene has, which is literally a Cinnabon and <laughs> his tenuous relationship with the security guards in the mall and his yep. knowledge of the mall department sport. Like, that's all he knows, and that those mm-hmm. are all the tools he has, plus his seductive charm and something that um, they were saying on the Insider podcast is like that Saul has, or Jimmy or Gene, less so Gene, <laughs> can rely on his seductive uh, tricks that they always work. But something that I thought about when hearing them say that is I was like, yeah, that's always true. Like whenever he turns on the charm offensive, almost always, right? It works. But what I love is that we never saw him do that with Kim. Like that's never how he approached Kim at all. He was never mm-hmm. conning her. He wasn't always honest with her, but it never felt like he was doing the charm offensive with her. What do you think? 
Yeah, right. And we didn't see him studying up, as far as I can recall, doing research to land Kim or woo Kim or convince her that he was something he wasn't. He definitely, like, put on fronts at times. And as you said, they weren't always honest with each other. But usually they were in on the con together or just kind of drafting on it together, more so than one being the victim of it. There are exceptions to that too, right? I suppose with the Tukum Carey episode where Saul was kind of conning and Kim wasn't in on every dimension of the plan. But for the most part, they were more or less on the same page. They were in it together. So I think that's a good observation. All right. I'm going to have you take this next part, which uh, involves (laughs) knowledge of college football. And I, like Gene Takovic himself, know nothing about college football. So what have we (laughs) learned from the college football uh, conversations? in this episode. Yeah, I wish I could say that I started out knowing much more about college football than you. (laughs) Know about baseball, college football, not my strength either. But we did get a lot of emails and we do appreciate all the research that went into them. People doing deep dives on the Nebraska Cornhuskers and where this was all playing out on the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad timeline. So I guess we should shout out our listener, Mark, right, who did some exhaustive work here. So this helps place us, all of these references to specific incidents during that Cornhusker season help us situate this within the Gilliganverse timeline. So during the 2010 NCAA college football season, the Nebraska Cornhuskers coach was Bo Pelini, who is mentioned. The quarterback was Taylor Martinez, who is first lamented and then praised. One of their receivers is Brandon Kinney, right? All three of these people are mentioned during the episode. So On Saturday, September 4th, 2010, the Oklahoma State Cowboys quarterback Brandon Whedon sprained his thumb in a game against Washington State, hitting it on a cougar helmet. So we heard the reference to that, that specific (laughs) injury. So we could place that down to the day. And Uh then in 2010, Nebraska and Oklahoma State were rivals in the Big 12 Conference. So that would be significant to a Nebraska fan. In 2011, Nebraska moved to the Big 10 Conference. And that comes up too. And some of our listeners were quibbling with that being a a hypothetical in this episode. Uh We hear Frank saying, do you think they're going to move? And apparently by that point, they would have had to commit to that move already. But I think we can infer from that that Gene is going to this office. As you said, it seems like weekly visits, presumably. Maybe it's Saturday nights after the football game so that he has fresh material to talk about, which would suggest that this is all taking place from early September, September 4th to October 23rd or thereabouts, 2010. So not a ton of time here has passed, really, since Gene was relocated we're talking about maybe like eight months or so have yeah, gone by that he's year. been in Omaha at the Cinnabon. So yeah. if he starts this on September 4th, it was also pointed out that that's the same day Walter White left Maine and headed home to New Mexico and to his doom. So presumably at the start of this, Walter White's still out there, but by the end, he's gone. Not that Gene knows that, right? But Not a lot of time has passed. It's always surprising to hear just because of how much happens to these characters and how much we have to keep track in our heads, just how little time has passed in all of these series, really. So we're in late 2010 here. Like when this starts, we're in the Breaking Bad timeline still, 
even though this is not Saul in the Breaking Bad timeline. I don't know if this is why we got so many of these emails breaking down. Like, Mark's was the most exhaustive, but we got a few emails about this particular Cornhuskers uh, data set. (laughs) But um, have you seen there's this guy on TikTok who does only this, where he, like, takes sports footage in the background yes. of scenes yeah. on mm-hmm. in film and television and and sort of breaks out exactly what game it is. It's really fun, even, mm-hmm. even for someone like me who knows nothing <laughs> about sports. Um, but I'm obsessed with this idea, and I've learned never to trust the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul timeline. I think I told the story on The Watch that, like, back in the day when I was watching uh, Breaking Bad, I was doing a freelance piece for Vulture where they tried to get me to like exactly nail down the timeline. And I watched every single episode and wrote down every single time someone mentioned even a single minute passing, let alone a day. I did a full rewatch, did the whole thing. And then it wasn't adding up. And then Peter Gould told me, oh yeah, we totally fudged the timeline. (laughs) So anytime people get like wrapped up in the timeline, I have flashbacks to that particular project that got thrown out the window. Uh, That being said, the September 4th date, I'm more than delighted to to read into uh, the fact that Walt left Maine on September 4th and Gene started to turn back into Jimmy and our Saul, like really started his work in, in earnest on the same day. Why would you say, like, why did Walter White leave Maine to go back to New Mexico? Like, why did that happen in your opinion? Well, at least partly probably because he just wasn't content being anonymous, being under the radar the way that Gene has been and still seems to want to be. At least a large part of him wants to remain incognito. And I don't think Walt, having ascended to the heights or sunk to the depths that he did in that series, just could go back to being a non-entity, even Mm -hmm. if it meant that he could continue to survive. I think there's a lot to say in this episode about like that need for credit or legacy or something like that. And also that idea of like, you can't Ray Seahorn said this in that theory video um, that Vanity Fair published this idea that for both Kim and Jimmy, there's like a lid, a rattling lid of their true nature is sort of like on the boil constantly. And they can try to put a lid on it, but it won't work and it will always bubble to the surface. And so the fact that like both Walter White and Jimmy McGill or whoever you want to call him, <laughs> like tried to put a lid on it for a while, tried to do the vacuum salesman uh, escape. And then eventually their true natures for Walter White, it's this very toxic, vainglorious sort of thing. And for Jimmy McGill, it's a little more benign, but still criminal uh, mm-hmm. instincts have to come bubbling you know, the lid has to come off. And mm-hmm. the same day, that's why. I don't know if they planned it that way, man, but it's it's really good. They probably planned it that way, I'm going to guess. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Okay, so let's talk about Gene putting on Jimmy and or Saul. And, and mm-hmm. chiefly, the, the, like, the real visual that we get for this is this pinky ring that he puts on. It's in the promo art for this episode. There's like a Cinnabon with some crumbles around it and then the pinky ring. Um this is from his pal Marco Pasternak, who we already mentioned, who died in season one, episode 10, Marco, and it's his pinky ring. It's something that Saul wore in Breaking Bad, but it was one of those like 
how did Han Solo get his blaster moments <laughs> right. in Better Call Saul prequeldom of like, how did Saul get his pinky ring? Oh, now we know that that pinky ring has a lot of meaning attached to it, that every time Saul fiddles with it, it probably means he's thinking about Marco or he's thinking about being Jimmy McGill or he's thinking about this, that, or the other thing. I mean, I think the read is fairly obvious, but do you have any deeper read on sort of like him putting slip, slipping the pinky ring back on in this episode? Well, I think that just speaks to the confusion of does that mean that he is transitioning back to Saul or is it to Jimmy or is it to both? Because Saul wore that ring, but Jimmy was the one who retrieved it from his friend and Jimmy was the one who Marco was so significant to and they were partners in low-level crime, right? So is yeah. that a signifier of Saul or is it a signifier of Jimmy or is it both? Are these lines just so blurry now that we can't even really draw those distinctions? We get the like showtime move. Yeah. That feels like a Jimmy move. Also, Alan Seppelmall pointed out in his recap, and I thought this was brilliant. I hadn't thought about that. When they're when they're running the the floor plan out in the snow, and Jimmy's on the bullhorn, uh, which is the audio that we got in the teaser, right? The like, you know, two two, I don't know, mm-hmm. cash for sweaters for you or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh that Jimmy's playing like the director in that mm-hmm. sequence, and that he was rarely ever so happy as he was when he was like directing these commercials or billboard shoots or whatever it was he was doing in the Jimmy McGill timeline. I hadn't really thought about that, about Jimmy McGill and or Saul Goodman as like the the director. But I guess that goes in with the whole storytelling aspect of being a con man. What do you think? Yeah. And I think there are a few other shout outs, callbacks here, just like symptoms of Jimmy Ursall coming out. <laughs> I mean, we talked about his rapport with the elderly. We talked about the slippery sidewalk. I think also, in addition to being a director, just calling out the numbers of each station in the store were kind of a throwback to his bingo days where he would call out numbers, right? When I love that. He was yeah. uh, the, the bingo administrator slash uh-huh. stand-up comic at times. And we see him do some social engineering on the phone with the department store manager, which is, I guess both a a Jimmy and Saul sort of tactic. And also like just bringing the roles to the security guard kind of reminded me of Jimmy bringing the Beanie Babies to court to get better court dates for his clients, right? Like he has that ability to see what people want, like what will get them on his side and then make the most of that. And there's more even. Some of these are things that I picked up on. Some of them are things I saw on Reddit. Those lines are blurry too. The distinction between Ben, (laughs) the the critic, and Ben, the Reddit reader. (laughs) That's kind of tough to draw those lines too. But I think it's also kind of a callback to the first episode of the series where he's showing the skateboarders how to be better scammers, right? Like Mm, this is mm -hmm. one more time where he's taken a couple amateurs under his wing for his own purposes, of course, you but he's love walking those skateboarders. them. Yes, I do. <laughs> I guess we're not going to see them again, but this reminded me of them at least. And never also <laughs> getting Jeff and his friend to cross state lines to make their crime yes. a RICO case, potentially. That could be a callback to the Sandpiper case where Chuck realizes that I think it was syringes were shipped across state lines to the Sandpiper facilities, which then converts it into a much bigger case. So that's another reference to the Jimmy days, but also suggests that maybe he actually learned something from Chuck during that time. So there are a lot of links there. And even like Marion, Carol Burnett's character saying that Gene is a good influence on Jeff, 
is kind of like Viola telling Kim how much she admires her and how much she makes her feel better about the law. Earlier this season, oh, episode five, Black and Blue, that was another Tatlock episode. Yeah. And in each of those cases, Kim or Jimmy is being praised by someone that they are actively deceiving and yeah. they don't really feel great about that, or at least Kim doesn't. So there are just so many parallels here that, I mean, he's just sort of a synthesis of Saul and Jimmy and Gene and even Walt, like... It's like a Captain Planet, like with their powers combined. You know, <laughs> he's Captain Scamit, I guess. I don't know. But even like at the end, like Walt's line to Saul from season five of Breaking Bad, like we're done when I say we're done, right? Which we see him yeah. kind of have that steely will and iron delivery at the end of this episode, which makes me think he's picked up something from Walt too. So Mm -hmm. He's just kind of been learning from his past experiences and from people he's encountered. And I guess the question is whether he is a better version of himself or himself or a new version or whether he's just ultimately the same guy at bottom. But I think we see just a lot of wrinkles. That's one thing I really appreciate about this episode is that on the surface, it might seem sort of low stakes or sort of simplistic, but there's just a lot going on there. We're kind of like retracing the evolution of this character, like all the way from the beginning of this series through Breaking Bad and now into this future timeline. So that's really satisfying, I think. My favorite parallel was pointed out to uh, me by one of our listeners. Elizabeth wrote this really great email that I'm going to read in a second. But I just want to say that like, for some reason, and I couldn't tell you why, because I think I usually do, I was not paying attention to the opening credits, like listing out who the actors were. But I do want to say that as soon as I heard Jim O'Hare's voice, I didn't have to see him. I just heard him <laughs> from the other room. I was yeah. like, oh, that's Jerry Gergich. Yep. I know that Midwestern voice. <laughs> that's Jerry, man. I love to see him here as the, our too. security guard. A yes. Perfect, perfect casting. Great job by him. And I love that they cast an actor whose best known role is one where he went by many names, right? Which is <laughs> appropriate for a Gene slash Jimmy slash Saul to be talking to Jerry slash Gary slash Larry slash Terry. <laughs> I, I also like that Frank seems to have the same idyllic, happy home life as Jerry oh, yeah. on Parks and Rec. Like yeah. he thinks other people have hard days, but not him. He can't oh, not identify. Me. <laughs> yeah. People go through this, not me. I'm married to Christy yeah. Brinkley, but everyone else, sure. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next, visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. All right, so we have this email from Elizabeth, and this is the moment in the episode. If you want to talk about, like, what's going on below the surface, this is the moment, like, 
in the the words of real world where people stop being polite and start getting real <laughs> is when the cabbie Jeff the cabbie takes the old slip and fall and he's out for a while <laughs> yeah. and uh that means that Jimmy has to extend his 3 minute cinnabon eating window and he does so with a story. This isn't the first time we've seen Jimmy do this, obviously. But I thought Elizabeth made a really smart parallel. She says, the, Jean, the scene where Gene resorts to fake crying in order to distract the security guard and keeping from turning to look at the screens was an interesting parallel to the scene in Breaking Bad where Walt is in Hank's office with the intention of bugging it. And I, had I Joanna, had to go look up which episode this was. And it's freaking Dead Freight, the train heist yeah. episode. Walt uses crocodile tears about his marriage, especially by drawing comparisons to Hank's relationship with Marie, like Saul does with his life and the guard's marriage, to distract and cover for his visit to Hank's office and especially when Hank comes in and Walt is still replacing the photo in the frame. A significant difference, however, is that in the case of Walt, they truly seemed like fake tears. With Jimmy slash Gene, we see real emotion and torment coming through. It's also interesting to think about these scenes in the context of the hegemonic, is that how you say that word? Masculinity, which I think you would could argue is a major theme in Breaking Bad. Walt uses his quote-unquote provider role for his family as a justification for his acts. In these scenes, these distractions in the form of an emotional breakdown would not be affected were it not for the case that vulnerable displays are unusual, largely via male-on-male policing, and thus shocking and highly uncomfortable when they unfold between two men. In our society, were this to play out between two women, the person on the receiving end of the emotions likely would not be so stunned and uncomfortable that they would be so highly distracted. So I love that observation do you agree that there is no real emotion between behind Walt when he's talking to Hank in Dead Freight? Man, it's hard to say what is left of Walt by that point or yeah. whether like the original Walt wasn't the real Walt and the final Walt yeah. is the real Walt. I think he also does that tactic a couple episodes later in, in Say My Name, where he goes back to retrieve the bug that he had placed in Dead Freight, and he tries the same tactic of crying about his marriage, and it just makes Hank so uncomfortable. So I think with Walt, it's probably mostly manipulation. I mean, I'm sure there's something to the fact that he's upset about the splintering of his relationship with Skylar, but yeah. not to the extent that we get with Jimmy in these rare windows into what is actually going on inside him. I mean, especially because we get that moment outside of the range of the security cameras in that like corner of the mall that Jimmy could take a moment. We've seen him take a breather there before to be like, woof, my my con, it's working. But this right. is a real like steady breath that got really real. This feels like, and again, we've seen Jimmy do this before, like when he's talking about Chuck, uh, you know, in the courthouse and stuff like that. And then to turn around to Kim and be all smiles. And that was like a really shocking and uncomfortable thing, but it just felt like a real, real upsetting processing of information, especially about Chuck and about Kim. And, um, and it gave this episode, which is largely a romp, uh, mm -hmm. some some real, real weight and have to. Yeah, so. it's like he can only be emotionally vulnerable when he's conning someone because that's uh. just like when he's most in touch with himself. Like, yeah. that's who he is. He has to use every tool at his disposal to persuade people. And in the process of doing that, sometimes the real hurt kind of broken kid inside him comes out, I think. And initially he starts, he says, like, my parents are dead, which is true, but I don't know that he says it with the same emotion. But then when he gets to his brother, my brother is dead. Yeah. It seems like it actually hits him there. And maybe Chuck's death is sort of sinking in belatedly. 
And we have seen him do that before, that kind of tactic. Like, I guess it was in the season four finale when he's making the speech to the Bar Association. Yeah. He's using Chuck's letter to him as a prop, right. and he plays on the sentiments of the review board to get reinstated as a lawyer. And his emotions seem so genuine that Kim comes up to him afterward as kind of comforting him and, and then is taken aback when he reveals that it was all a work. But was it's it? all good, man. Right. Yeah. You know, and maybe that time less of him actually came out because he was still sort of in denial, I think, about Chuck's yeah. death and his role in Chuck's death. But maybe now, all this time later and where he is in life, it is actually coming out because when he makes that speech to Frank and he's talking about how no one would notice or care if he died, right? And he has no friends and he has no family and all these things. Like, I don't know whether in that moment he even realizes how completely that applies to his actual life or not, yeah. or yeah. whether that's coming out kind of unconsciously. But obviously, as viewers, we're watching that and we're saying he's not putting on an act here. Not really. Like, I don't know how he feels underneath all of the artifice and all the many layers he's put on over the years, but he is basically accurately describing his life right now, which is sad. I love that in that interaction, I mean, I don't know if anyone listening knows this, but Bob Odenkirk is very talented. <laughs> um, <laughs> that he has to play that emotion and the tension of the scene and the comedy of the scene. Yeah. And he does it all in perfect <laughs> tandem. Yep. And again, that's all Jimmy, Jimmy Saul, J Gene, all just mm -hmm. in the mix there. And it's so brilliant. Um, and the the heist, the tension around the heist, we probably knew this was gonna work out, right? But for the first time outside of those little gene interludes of like, is, you know, is he okay after he fainted or is that cabbie going to recognize him or all that sort of stuff? Like this is the first real, real investment in, we don't know how this is going to shake out. Right. Cause mm -hmm. we knew Jimmy was going to be quote unquote. Okay. If that's what you want to call Salt Goodman, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, all through, all through the uh, the prelude to Breaking Bad, we knew how all that was going to turn out. We knew how he survived Breaking Bad. We knew all of that, but we don't know what happens to Gene Takovic, you know. And so that changes the stakes a little bit in all of that. I, yeah. Like what that means is, I'm not wholly certain how to interpret this final moment when Jimmy. I think similar to Walt. Can't resist, but go back. This is this is a real uh, murderer, serial killer move. You got to go back to the scene right. of the crime, right? He has to go back, mm -hmm. bask in his victory, and he pulls out the uh, the shirt and the tie, which are horribly clashing patterns because we can't see color in this episode, so we got to like <laughs> make the Saul Goodman come yeah. through in the pattern uh, of mm -hmm. the shirt and the tie, and then he puts them away on the rack. Now, Alison Tatlock has given some interviews about what this means in certain regard, but she's being kind of circumspect about it in other ways because I don't think she can say, and that's the last we'll ever see of his inclination <laughs> to be Saul or anything like that. They're trying to hide the ball as best they can. How do you interpret this? What do you, what do you make of this? Yeah, I'll be honest. Until I read Seppenwall's piece right after my first watch, it hadn't really occurred to me that this could be the end of Gene that we might not see him again. I'm still leaning against that being the case, and I'm not sure I want it to be the case. 
obviously we're going to get Kim in some context, but can the ending be fulfilling if those two don't come together again? And speaking of dates in the calendar, don't we need to find out about that phone call that Saul told Francesca to expect when they were packing up the office in the season four flash forward, right? Like he tells her she's supposed to pick up a call on November 12th at 3 p.m. precisely. And I think we know from all the Cornhuskers references that we aren't quite there yet. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that this is not the end of Gene, but it's tough because at first I was sort of sad feeling like he was falling back into his old ways here, right? Like, oh, this is just the old Jimmy Orsall coming back out again because this is not like clearly he didn't quit cold turkey like Kim seemed to in last week's episode when she wouldn't even tell an innocuous lie to withdraw from her hearing because she had just turned over a new leaf seemingly. So at first I was worried because it seemed like he was slipping, so to speak, right back into his old ways. And I wondered whether he'd learned anything. It reminded me of that old Chuck quote, always the same, couldn't keep his hands out of the cash drawer, right? But maybe he really did need to do one last job to get it out of his system. This time he was doing it largely out of self-preservation so that he could stay off the grid. And as far as we know, no one got hurt from this scheme, it seems like. So maybe the suit, the the Saul slash Dan Flash's attire that he just hangs up and and walks (laughs) away from there, maybe the suit is just a signature. It's like a sign-off, right? It's like the SG was here that he wrote when he was trapped in the garbage room. So Mm -hmm. maybe he can walk away from that now. He is a new person, perhaps a better person, but who knows? He's never been able to walk away permanently before. Alison Tatlock, told Seppenwall, to me, that moment of longing is almost a longing for a lost lover. I like how you say that he leaves it public for others to see. It's almost like an actor leaving his costume behind or even the ghost of something. He can't fully own it. Uh, yeah. Saul Gubner was here. Saul, like, sign, signing his his work, uh, yeah. the, his murder scene. It is a question. This is, like, the big question that we have right here, right? We see that he's got the Kansas City Royals lunchbox. We have been wondering if Kim was going to show up in the Nebraska timeline. But, like, would you be mad <laughs> if this is the last we get of Gene Takovic? Yeah, so if this is the the series finale for Gene the way that last week was perhaps the season finale for the prequel part of the show, it would be on some level a fitting, satisfying ending, I think, here to see him draw on everything he's been here, just do one last job, even if we can't be completely confident that this will be his last job, that he will actually be able to resist the temptation forever. I wouldn't mind leaving him on that semi-ambiguous note, right? Like, who knows what the future holds for Saul slash Jimmy slash Gene, except for the fact that I just, I want to see him and Kim cross paths again, right? And it's just hard for me to imagine if we see them in an earlier point in the timeline. Yeah, if we see them in the the Solverse, would that satisfy you? Like, I I agree with you. It was not until I read Seppenwall that I was like, oh, wait. And as far as I know, Alan hasn't watched ahead. So mm-hmm. I don't think he's like tipping his hand. And I don't think Alan would tip his hand that way. Mm-hmm. But but Andy came to a similar conclusion on the watch where he was like, maybe this is the last we've seen of, of Gene. And it hadn't occurred to me. But then I started thinking about like the quotes we keep getting from Peter Gould, et cetera, from people saying like, we've made some risky moves. We don't know if people are going to like all the moves we made. And in, in we, you know, we did some unconventional things. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that, 
we might watch the next few episodes thinking, well, and then we're going to return to the gene timeline, but we never return to the gene timeline would be a way to keep us on the back foot, right? And that idea of like, well, surely Jimmy and Kim are going to meet again and and maybe they've traveled enough in their own moral reckoning that they now deserve each other, they can find each other or whatever. But like, what is the moral bent of the Gilligan verse, I guess, is the big question. Like, mm-hmm. what if we look at the scales, the the just the scales of justice in in Jimmy Small Jean's life, like let's count all the sins on the one side. And I'm like, Walter White deserved to die at the end of Breaking Bad for all that he <laughs> mm-hmm. did. I love Jimmy Saul Jean. I especially love Jimmy McGill, and I want and I want happiness for him. But is the degree of happiness he deserves? Is it? not minding his job at the Cinnabon at the mall anymore? Is it, you know, working, enjoying his work so much he forgets his lunch break? Like, is that the degree of happiness he deserves? Does he really deserve, you know, a a life with Kim is my question. Part of me is just like, hey, they should stick to their guns. Like, they've conditioned us to think one way about the consequences of characters' actions in this universe and that they should stay with that right up until the bitter end. And we've just seen Jimmy do too much to feel good about him getting to ride off into the sunset or get the girl after all, right, and live happily ever after. At the same time, I would kind of appreciate them straying from that formula a little. Like, we've seen so many characters in this universe meet bloody, brutal ends, often well-deserved, and we've spent so much time with Jimmy, and he's such a sympathetic character, despite everything he's done, in a way that Walt wasn't really, or at least I think that that Gilligan and Gould didn't really intend Walt to be, although a lot of people still were pulling for Walt right up until the end. But I think there are a lot of breadcrumbs in there that make you think, oh, maybe there's just there's still a lot of good in Jimmy, like maybe he can find his way back to that. And maybe the last shot of this episode is all we get, just that hint that, yeah, maybe he has finally moved on. He has left Saul behind him. He's going to be a better man now. But I don't know. Like, there just still seems like a lot we don't know. You know, where do the diamonds come from? Like, what part do they play? Maybe we find out about that in the Breaking Bad timeline episodes. But what about that phone call that Francesca's waiting for after this point? And If he and Kim meet up for the final time during the Breaking Bad timeline, well, we know that he continues to be Saul after that, right? So is there a possibility of anything transformative coming from that interaction? Like, is it for the best if if Kim just blazes her own trail and leaves him behind and finds fulfillment somewhere else? Like, maybe the happy ending is that she's free of him and he's free of her, right? And they can't keep dragging each other down. But it would be tough. Like, I I think I would have a hard time. I have so much faith in these creators to steer the ship to a great destination that I wouldn't say I'm I'm worried necessarily, but I have some misgivings, I think, if this is the last time we see Gene, just because there is part of me that wants something a little bit better for him or more for him than we saw here. They seem very invested in surprising us. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm considering. So I'm just going to like, I'm just going to watch the next few episodes and not assume I'm going to see Jim again, Gene again or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or maybe the yeah. next time we see him, we're, as you say, we're in color because he's no longer living this like drained of all life, black and white experience or whatever. I don't know. Right. I, I have yeah. a lot of questions, but like Peter Gould said this thing on the official podcast very subtly. And I don't know if I should read anything into it. 
But he said this would be a different string of episodes with Don, meaning the original actor who played Jeff the Cabbie. And string of episodes makes it sound like mm. we haven't seen the last of Jeff the Cabbie, <laughs> which is, yeah. if I were Jeff the Cabbie, I would not leave it there if I were him, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. But I don't know. I like this idea. You know, Andy has harped on it a lot. This idea, I never really thought, I never really subscribed to this idea that Breaking Bad has, like, multiple endings. Um, but I think it does have different, very different flavors in its final three episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I never liked the interpretation that the end of Breaking Bad was just a dream. That's not uh, my preferred mm-hmm. interpretation of that show. But I like this idea if they're like, okay, these are our endings. We've got, here's the end of Jimmy. Here's the end of Saul. Here's the end of Gene. What if we tell it in the order they're not expecting? Right. I can kind of see that happening. You know? Yeah, I mean, maybe it was just that we got this episode when we did. We we'll still go back to the Gene timeline, but just you know, confusing all of us, throwing us all off the scent because we were expecting Saul and Walt and Jesse. Now, even like midway through this episode, I was thinking, okay, we're going to flash back at some point here, right? <laughs> like, I almost, I didn't do it, but I almost scrolled ahead to see if, like, just if the <laughs> if thumbnails ever turned into color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I didn't so, do it. You know. Maybe that was what they meant by just like going out of sequence, out of uh, temporal order. But I don't know if if that is enough of like <laughs> just uh, throwing a wrench into what we expected for for these writers. I should say I'm excited to see Walton Jesse, and I'm especially excited to see like if they manage to deliver on what they're promising, which is like we found a really thoughtful like smart way to use them. It's not just like random. We found a good way to use them. I believe that they would have, and I'm excited to see that, but like, that's not why I'm watching the last of these episodes, right? Like I still feel very much, this is still Bob Odenkirk's show for me. And like, uh, you know, Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston are phenomenal, but like, and, and to zoom back to that, like morality question of the world, like, I don't know, we talked about this before, but I don't know what it is that like Jesse Pinkman did that makes him deserve, you know, his, after all this mm-hmm. <laughs> happy ending uh, yeah. moment. But if after all this, a happy ending, even though it seems like it's about a fake dog, but maybe <laughs> that is the happy ending, as close to a happy ending as we can get for Gene Takovic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I think we both think too highly of this series to want the last word to be, oh, and it changes the way we view Breaking Bad. Like, I think that is a a great offshoot of this. And I look forward to rewatching, knowing what we know now. But it's never really been about like, oh, Breaking Bad's one of the greatest series of all time. Like, this is just setting the stage for that. And the way that this prequel triumphs is by just handing the baton over to Breaking Bad so you can just seamlessly watch them. Like, I think they kind of are comparable in our minds at this point, just as artistic achievements and as storytelling journeys. And so, yes, if we go back to Breaking Bad time and it brings everything to fruition, everything we saw of Jimmy and Saul to that point, great, if that is a great coda for that character. But I wouldn't want it to be, oh, we finally got to see Walt and Jesse again. All right, this is what we've been waiting for. That's how we're going to go out. I'm sure that they won't do it that way. But that's my misgiving, I guess, about ending in that timeline as opposed to jumping forward (laughs) again beyond that series. And I think they've already mission accomplished that whole like change the way that you would watch Breaking Bad. Because like whenever I've like in the last couple weeks when I've been rewatching clips to talk about scenes or whatever, it's really upsetting to watch Saul Goodman, like mm-hmm. unbearably upsetting to yeah. see what Jimmy becomes for 
several years of his life. Let's talk about another timeline question. We got a lot of emails from people and I got a lot of tweets from people saying they thought we missed a trick about the timeline in the end of fun and games last week's episode, because when uh, Saul is on his Bluetooth in the shower, he talks about a case with a public masturbator. So that when he goes to see Bajor for the first time, this is the first time we see Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad. He accidentally has like a file on a public masturbator with him. And so a lot of people thought that that meant that we were in 2008 and you and I had the whole debate. Are we in 2005 according to the Mm -hmm. car registration or are we in 2008 according to the Nutrigrain bar wrappers? A lot of people (laughs) thought we were in 2008 because of this public masturbation reference in the case. Uh, What I will say is that if we are, it's not the day that Mm -hmm. Walt walks into his office because he's not wearing the same close at all leaving aside like that bob odenkirk looks a little trimmer and healthier than he did like just the suits are not the same so mm-hmm. that is, this is not the same day maybe it's maybe it's a couple days before maybe but like i also got emails about like there's a guy who pair of legs you see in the office and francesca walks around <laughs> him and is that walter white uh, i don't believe it is so like <laughs> i don't think they were trying to show us the moment right before he mm-hmm. meets walter white but uh, I don't know. Uh, again, yeah. sh- am I making a mistake getting too caught up in timeline questions? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> I think I'm still on Team 2005 for the reasons that we laid out last time. Yeah. But it's possible. I mean, I don't know. There could be a bunch of public masturbators, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Albuquerque's lousy with him. Yeah. Um, and then I want to go back to that like fan theories video that I mentioned that that Bob and, and Ray did and a couple things that they mentioned there. None of these are spoiler spoilers, but just in case you don't want to know things that they said. Here, here are some oblique things that they referenced that may or may not pan out on the show. Um, talking about Kim's hair, and you, Ben, had already informed me that like the ponytail on Kim was very important. Like when it was tight and up, when it was down and loose, when her hair was down altogether, mm-hmm. they always were very intentional with that. And Bob Odenkirk says, "I'm not saying the ponytail dies, but the ponytail is not long for this world." Uh, <laughs> he could have been talking about the final scene when Kim walks out and her hair is down. Or when Kim shows back up, does she have like a haircut or something like yeah. that? Like, what, what do you have any ponytail theories <laughs> that you like to share? Maybe she gets lice. Oh, okay, <laughs> great. Know. Love it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Bob also says that he, meaning Jimmy, can't remain in hiding. It's killing him. That seems to me like it could refer to this episode that we just watched. I don't think that that's necessarily anything bigger. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too, just given the way he walks away at the end. I mean, it's it's killing him to be in hiding and not to be using his skills and his expertise here. So yeah. again, I hope that this is just the last hurrah, one last job, as the saying goes. I would love for Jimmy to still be able to somehow like are there <laughs> are there fun cons he can do that are not crimes? Victimless cons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Use his con powers for good. I don't know. Right. Uh, everybody, everybody can't die, he says. He was saying Lalo died, Howard died, blah, blah, blah. So Kim Wexler lives at gmail.com. Still feeling like a good purchase is mm-hmm. uh, what I have to say about that account that was actually free and I didn't purchase it. Okay. And then uh, Walt and Jesse smartly and economically used. Again, no, no spoilers here. Just fun teases for what's to mm-hmm. come. 
Yeah. Before we close, one thing I wanted to say just about the heist scene. First of yeah. all, there's there's one more callback there. And there must just be like a full-time callbacks specialist in the writer's room because it's really impressive just how many there were in this episode alone. But mm-hmm. in episode four of season two, Jimmy is trying to get Chuck to pull Kim off of Doc Review. And Jimmy is offering to quit being a lawyer in return. And Jimmy says, no more Jimmy McGill Esquire. Poof. Like he never even existed. And here he says, Gene who? Poof. I'd be gone. A ghost. So maybe poof is just something he says. But again, this is just another link back to Chuck, back to Jimmy, which I like a lot. And I did, in addition to my uh, man on the street purchasing of cinnamon rolls, I did also break out my stopwatch for this scene here just to see if they were playing by the rules here. And I think they may have been cheating a little bit <laughs> with I with mean, the on timing. the Insider Pod, they said it actually, the run actually was 11 minutes. Because I was like, yeah. no way you can do that in three minutes. I don't know why they didn't make uh, the security guard, good old Jerry Gergich, a slower cinnamon roll eater so that they didn't have to <laughs> cheat anything. Why they put three minutes on the clock, I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's like they cut from Jeff in the department store to the security room and, and you can see Jeff pick up on the security cameras where he left off on the preceding shot. So I was thinking that they were trying to suggest it's like, hey, you have three minutes like this is all taking place in that time. I set my stopwatch, which I started when Gene sends the text to Jeff to tell him it's go time. And at that point, Gene hasn't even started his own stopwatch yet. But later, you see Gene look at his watch, and it says 2 minutes 15 seconds, whereas my watch had just hit 3 minutes by then. And by the time Frank is done chowing down, my watch was at 4.5 minutes. And Granted, Gene was doing his best to keep him talking and not chewing, but they may have bent time just a, a tad there, which it's tough. I mean, they were on a, a tough, tight schedule, but I was kind of curious to see whether that would actually <laughs> match up, and it didn't quite. So I don't know if that is just them taking some liberties or if it was actually supposed to take a little longer than that, but it did take longer than it had in his scouting missions to the security room before that. And I just I love the humor in that whole scene, like the the litany of items that Jeff is repeating to himself mm-hmm. during his uh, supermarket department store sweep and the whole Nathan Fielder-esque rehearsal of the heist. And also one other thing I learned during the Insider Pod was that they made that store up yeah. out of whole cloth. I mean, it was just an empty space. Apparently, they tried to convince some actual stores to let them film there, and they couldn't. And so they populated that they entire it. store. Yeah, and it's it incredible. very convincing. So that incredible. is just an unimaginable amount of work. But I just, you know, give Odenkirk the Emmy, I think, just for that, like, extended groan that he does alone when he has to buy the last few seconds. And he just does this long groan and he's like craning his neck to see the screens behind Frank and the whole like Nebraska football trivia training montage and the way that Nick, the other security guard, warms up to warms Gene. Up, yeah. Yeah, after like countless cinnamon rolls. So I just, I enjoyed all of that. And I think that the fact that he is able to really get in touch with the inner Jimmy there and mourn Chuck and yet also play it almost as a skit yeah. in that same scene is just really an incredible display of all of his acting talents. And 
I guess the fact that he gets more emotional than Frank is ready for and things get kind of awkward gives him a great excuse to stop showing up there with cinnamon rolls after that, right? If he doesn't show up the next Saturday, I feel like Frank would be like, okay, I don't want this guy to unburden himself to me again. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to say, so, you know, we we discovered last week, listening to the Insider Podcast, how they made that final confrontation between um, Kim and Jimmy, like, uh, technically very hard on them for themselves because they decided to film these long shots that they then edited together in a way that is invisible to us. <laughs> uh, so Chris McHale, who's the host of the Insider Podcast and also the editor on the show, is this, like, this cracked me up. He kept asking Michelle and et cetera. He's like, so how many cameras did you have? Like, that was really hard to do, huh? How many cameras did you have? And they had like 16 security cameras, all this stuff. And yeah. eventually he's like, it was really hard to edit, man. We had all this footage <laughs> that we had to cut together and sync up and all those security cameras and like make it all time out with the yeah. scene that Bob was doing with Jim and all this sort of stuff like that. So like, you know. Shout yeah, out to Chris and, and the editors here I am on this episode. Getting my stopwatch out to check their work. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. You did a great job. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's end as we like to do with the tease for next week, which comes via Allison Tatlock's interview with Entertainment Weekly. She says we're going to keep you on your toes, and she said harrowing. So <laughs> no more fun capers with Carol Burnett, I guess next week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Back to something devastating. Great, yep. great stuff. Love this show. We got a one-week break from the the pathos and just <laughs> just being on the edge of our seats. I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever's in store. All right. So please do email us. Kim Wexler lives at gmail.com. If you have any Cinnabon questions, any, please feel free to, I feel like oftentimes I'll make like California references and I'm like, we don't really have Cinnabon out here. We have some, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of emails from people being like, how dare you? Have you ever been in a mall? Um, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Fields, certainly, but I don't know about Cinnamon. The other thing I want to say, you made a Supermarket Sweep reference. Mm-hmm. I had that exact same. Uh, I used to watch that show regularly with my sister as a kid. Uh-huh. And if you yep. ever put me on Supermarket Sweep, I know exactly where to go. It's to the frozen Ooh. turkeys and the ground uh-huh. coffee. Like, I know the big ticket <laughs> items from Supermarket Sweep. And I just love that they took the same approach to uh, to this ice. <laughs> <laughs> What's the frozen turkey of the department stores? The cashmere sweaters. So yeah, the Armani great. suits. Huh, <laughs> you want to do a heist together? Maybe after yeah. we're done podcasting, we can take uh, it to a supermarket. <laughs> yes. Okay. Great. All right. And I'm going to get my stopwatch out again because it's time to snack for me. I've been staring at and smelling these cinnamon rolls I can't this entire episode. Like this is like restrained yourself. I know. This is like the marshmallow <laughs> test here. I'm showing my restraint here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you guys are all our alibis should Ben and I try to pull off a heist in the future. And we will see you here next week for an episode that we don't even know the title of. So we'll see what's up. Is it Walton Jesse? Who knows? We'll see you next week. <laughs> this episode was produced by the great Chris Sutton, who definitely deserves Cinnabon. And I'm sorry we can't get him one. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little 
sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 